Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads and pray for God to help us understand what he himself has said to us in his word. The writer of Psalm 43 cries out to God, Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Father, we pray you would do those things this morning. Send forth your light and your truth among us. Please would they bring us nearer to you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Knowing God is a book by J.I. Packer, a seminary professor who died in 2020. It's a spiritual classic that has sold more than 1.5 million copies, which is a very large amount for a serious book about God. Early in the book, J.I. Packer asks a question. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Packer's answer is knowledge of God. You might have guessed that answer in advance from the title of his book, Knowing God. But if I hadn't told you which book that question came from, and if we weren't in church, and if it wasn't a pastor asking the question, how would you perhaps instinctively answer it? Here it is again. What is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else. If you listened perhaps to your heart before your head came into play, I wonder how your heart would answer that question. It wouldn't surprise me if someone here or several of us, or perhaps all of us, need to be re-persuaded that knowing God really is the best of the best, the very greatest thing available in life. And today's Bible passage is a good place for us to go for that persuasion. 
at the heart of the passage, there's a prayer for greater knowledge of God. In verse 16, Paul tells his readers he's been praying for them. I'm sure they were glad to hear that. And then in verse 17, he tells them exactly what he's been praying for. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God, the knowledge of him. Wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. Paul has been asking the Father to make these Christians wiser in their knowledge of God, with better understanding of what God has revealed about himself. Paul wants these Christians to grow in their knowledge of God. But Paul doesn't stop there. He moves from the general to the specific. He says he's been praying for his readers to learn about three particular things so that they'll grow in their knowledge of God. You can see in verses 18 and 19 that there are three what's in those verses. And each what introduces a different topic. Paul says he's praying that you may know one, what is the hope to which he has called you? Two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? The hope of God's calling, the riches of his inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power. Those three topics can expand our knowledge of God. We're going to look at each of those three topics in this sermon. But before we begin, there's a line at the start of verse 18 that we have to take into account. Paul says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. That tells us knowing God isn't a straightforward process of information transfer. The information we're going to explore about God in this passage, it needs to be welcomed by our hearts as light to live by. From the Bible's point of view, what goes on inside a person is more important than what happens on the surface. We have desires, thoughts and dreams going on inside us that other people are unaware of. That inner person with its desires, thoughts and dreams is what the Bible calls the heart. And there is a sense in which that is the real you. Our surface interactions with one another are important. But in the final analysis, the real you is your inner person, your heart. That's why God laments in Isaiah 29, these people honour me with their lips on the surface, but their hearts are far from me. And that means knowledge of God is only meaningful if it's really taking root in your heart, if your inner person truly knows him. It's possible to know about God and talk about him and sing about him and pray to him, 
But if you don't know him in your heart, you don't really know him. If your inner person isn't alive to God, conscious of him, responsive to him, then however much information you might know about God, you don't yet know him. The information about God in this passage will help us know him better if our hearts welcome it as relevant for our ongoing relationship with him. And that's why Paul prays for these Christians to be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation. They already have God's spirit living within them. Paul has made that clear earlier in the chapter, but believers can receive more or less of the spirit's work and Paul wants them to receive more from the spirit in this area of wisdom and revelation. Our hearts are naturally unresponsive to God. We need him to turn up the lights by his spirit so that the eyes of our hearts see things properly. Thankfully, that's something God loves to do. Prayer for more inward light is prayer that God loves to answer. He gives light at the start of the Christian life, which John Newton captures in his hymn, Amazing Grace, I once was lost but now am found, was blind but now I see. And God continues to give light to the Christian when we come to him and plead with him to enlighten the eyes of our heart. I hope we've all got the point. To know God better, we need him to give us wisdom and revelation by his spirit. We need him to give us inward light so that the eyes of our heart can see what really counts. With that said, let's now turn to the first of the three what's. Remember, each what in verses 18 and 19 introduces a topic that will help us grow in the knowledge of God. The first what is hope, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. When God calls a person into his service, that calling comes with hope. Hope for a much better world to come. In fact, if hope for a better world to come wasn't attached to God's call as part of the deal, it wouldn't make any sense to answer God's call. That's what Paul himself says in another of his letters. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, it's to be pitied more than all people. In the same chapter, he goes on to say, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There would be no point living the Christian life if it didn't lead to a much better world beyond the grave. Later in Ephesians, we find out that Paul is in chains as he writes this letter. He describes himself in chapter 6 as an ambassador in chains. Scholars think Paul wrote Ephesians while he was under house arrest in Rome. He was in his own house, but he was chained constantly to a Roman soldier who guarded him. Imagine what it would be like to go through your day chained to a guard. No thank you. Paul was in that grim situation because of his Christian faith. When he put his trust in Christ, he knew he'd likely end up in chains as a result. He had himself locked up Christians while working for the religious establishment in Jerusalem. 
But despite that likelihood, Paul had answered God's call because God's call comes with the sure hope of eternal life. And Paul wants these Christians he's praying for to know that hope better so they can know God better. How does knowledge of our hope expand a Christian's knowledge of God? Well, if God was mainly in the business of making life better for us in this world, we'd have to give him a performance review based on our current life circumstances. And life is often very hard, so God often wouldn't get a good review. But God isn't mainly in the business of making life better for his people in this world. He's mainly in the business of making life better for us eternally. And that means we can trust that even our suffering has a part to play in God's good plan for our future. Do you see how growing in your knowledge of the world to come and welcoming that as light to live by, do you see how that will make a difference to your knowledge of God himself and his purposes, what he's like, what he wants? God looks out on this current world and sees its fallenness, all the evil that goes on in it. He sees the unhappiness, the loneliness, the stress, the anxiety, the cruelty going on in this current world. According to 2 Peter chapter 3, the only thing stopping God from bringing this current world to an end right away is his plan to save still more people so they can also take part in the new heavens and the new earth. So, if we're looking to this world for lasting satisfaction, our knowledge of God will be distorted because he takes such a different view of this world. He's patiently waiting to bring it to an end. Someone whose heart is firmly set on the world to come, that person isn't a sad case, someone to feel sorry for. No, that person is well on the way to Christian maturity. Fixing your hope on the world to come will help you grow in the knowledge of God. And it shouldn't be hard for us to look forward to the life to come, especially when we take some time to meditate on what it will be like. Revelation 21 is a Bible chapter that looks ahead to that future world. In Revelation 21, God says, I am making everything new. When you get a... Um, newly minted coin. That's eye-catching, isn't it? A newly minted quarter is pleasing to look at. It gleams and shines. And the new heavens and the new earth will be a newly minted world. There'll be continuity, sky above, earth below, just like a newly minted quarter. It's still a quarter. But alongside the continuity, there's newness freshness, the world to come will shine and gleam. And in contrast to coins, it will never become tarnished. It will never be tarnished by sorrow or death or sin. And in the world to come, we'll be reunited with Jesus in person. He'll be physically present and we'll enjoy him forever, conscious always of the still visible wounds in his hands, feet, and side, reminding us of his death on the cross, which paid the entry fee for us, 
so that we could get into that extraordinary place. Jesus was so eager for us to be with him there that he did what it took to make unrighteous people righteous. He died in our place, punished for our sins. If you've put your trust in Jesus, then no matter how disqualified you might feel yourself to be, God declares you qualified to live with him forever. And if you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus, that's something you could do here at the Triad during this service. Why delay? Come to Jesus to receive the righteousness that will qualify you for eternal life. Come to Jesus to receive true and certain hope, hope that will help you know God and know him better and better. Let's move on to the second of the three what's. Remember, these what's are areas of knowledge that with God's help will improve, expand our knowledge of him. At the end of verse 18, Paul's pray, Paul prays for his readers to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. In the Bible, saints is another word for God's people. So, Verse 18 is saying, God stands to inherit us. And in God's sight, that inheritance amounts to glorious riches. The theologian Don Carson explains it like this. We are God's inheritance. Paul wants us to appreciate the value that God places on us. End quote. If you trust in Christ then because of his qualifying work, in God's sight, you're a treasure that God is looking forward to inheriting. And if that changes the way you think about yourself, it should also change the way you think about your fellow Christians, because the same is true for them. Putting it differently, you can't let that information change the way you think about yourself without it also changing the way you think about all the saints. Before podcasts came along, there used to be something called radio. You may never have heard of radio. It's basically an extinct technology, but it used to be pretty popular. And each radio station had its own wavelength. To hear a radio station's output, you had to be on the right wavelength for that station. If you were close to the right wavelength, you'd hear the radio station, but it would be muffled and distorted. It's rather like that with knowing God. We need to get onto his wavelength to gain a clear perception of who he is. The truth that God's people are his eternal inheritance, precious in his sight, that's a truth we need to receive and welcome to get onto God's wavelength. And lots of applications follow on from this. When one real Christian falls out with another real Christian, that's going to distort and muffle their knowledge of God. Because he looks at both of them and considers both of them part of his glorious inheritance forever. If we see another believer and uh, instinctively find ourselves grinding our teeth, thinking, I just can't. Stand them! I wish they didn't belong to this church. That 
is a sign that the eyes of our heart lack light. How can we expect to grow in our knowledge of God when that's our attitude to his precious inheritance? We need to learn from King David, who says in Psalm 16, verse 3, As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. Psalm 16, verse 3. David takes the same delight in God's people that God takes in his people. David shared God's heart towards his people, and that helped David to know God. Let's press on to the last of the three what's. Paul has said he's praying for his readers to know what is the hope to which God has called them, what are the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. And verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? The immeasurable greatness of his power. Why does God include this last what in his prayers for his readers to know things so that they'll know God better? Why does he include this last one about God's power? Surely every Christian already knows that God is powerful. One of the first songs Christian children learn to sing is, My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. I'm sure there was a children's song like that in Paul's day. It's something we all know. And yet, have we truly received it in our hearts as light to live by? The immeasurable greatness of God's power. Remember how this section begins back in verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. We can know a truth in a superficial way without it really penetrating deeply into our being. Do you know in the core of your being that God can do it? His arm is not too short to do whatever is in his will. God can keep his promises. He has the power. I can do everything through him who strengthens me. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, he believed in the immeasurable greatness of God's power. He believed that in his heart. There will be a logjam in our relationship with God if we don't have that inner acceptance of God's power, that he really is able to do it. When our heart's vision of God is rather small and puny, we can't expect to know him better because the one true God isn't small and puny at all. He has immeasurably great power toward those who believe, according to verse 19. Paul is eager for Christians to have this inner acceptance of God's power. And so he goes on to set out an example of God's power in action. The power that God has toward us who believe, verse 19, is the same great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead 
and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul turns to Jesus' resurrection as an example of the divine power that believers can call upon. What power was displayed on Resurrection Sunday? Jesus' body had been dead since the previous Friday. His cold, dry arteries were refilled with blood. His disused lungs were reinflated with air. His inactive neural pathways were revisited by signals. A corpse returned to life. That in itself would be an astonishing miracle, but the life that returned to the body of Jesus wasn't ordinary life. It was the kind of resurrection life that can sustain a human body in the heavenly places. In verse 21, Paul says Jesus was raised far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. He's been raised to God's right hand. No wonder Paul speaks of the immeasurable greatness of God's power. Doing all of that with the dead body of Jesus. Imagine if God hadn't had quite enough power to succeed in raising his son from the tomb to the heavens. We would be Christless. But God did have enough power to raise Jesus to his right hand. And as a result of that power, the church has Christ as our head. That's what Paul says in verses 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. With Christ as our head, through God's great power, power that is still available for those who believe, with Christ as our head, what do we lack? We have it all, Paul says. We have fullness from the one who's in charge of all filling everywhere. The Bible describes itself as gold. And the particular nugget of gold that we should take away from this Bible passage is that if we want to know God better, there are three areas of knowledge that we can focus on to know him better. The three what's in verses 18 and 19, the hope of eternal life, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of his power. Isn't it good to have those three topics to focus on so that we know how to grow in our knowledge of God? If I think back on my years, my decades as a Christian, I can see that the times when my heart was well lit in those three ways, those three watts, when my heart was well lit in those ways. Those were the times when I knew God best. I'm so grateful to this Bible passage for reminding me of that, for showing me areas of knowledge that I've neglected so that I can meditate on them and, and pray about 
so that by God's grace I can rekindle a lively, joyful knowledge of God. And I've, I've felt that knowledge of God being rekindled during this past week in preparing this sermon, studying this Bible passage. But this is something that we can help one another with. Paul's emphasis towards the end of the passage is on the church. We can help one another to grow in our knowledge of God by focusing on these three areas of knowledge, these three what's. Remember that quote from J.I. Packer we heard at the start. Knowledge of God is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight and contentment than anything else. We should all desire to grow in that wonderful knowledge of God. This passage points us to three areas of knowledge that will help us know him better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to confess that we are very easily drawn to exciting things in this world that catch our attention and distract our hearts from you. And that can happen to us quickly and we want to say that we are sorry for the ways that it has happened in our lives. Help us, Father, to desire greater knowledge of you. Would we want our hearts to be enlightened? And we pray you would do that by your Spirit. Please do that in these three areas. Help us to see more of the hope to which you've called us, more of how glorious your inheritance is in the saints, and help us believe in and call upon your immeasurably great power. We pray that we would do this as a body, as the church, with Christ as our head. Amen.